Brothers and sisters, it's good to be back, uh, not only just another Lord's Day, but to be back in our rhythm again with Sunday School. I have been, uh, I don't know if, if looking forward is the, to this, this lesson or this next couple lessons is the right way to characterize it. Um, I have been anticipating it <laughs> and with, with a, a, a due sense of, of reverence of God, of joy to be able to participate, even in difficult subject matter, uh, difficult things to, to ponder and meditate, incomprehensible things. Uh, but at the same time, uh, it, there's an there's amount of, of fear and trembling. And as we come to this question of the extent of God's providence, now we, you know, back in the kind of the cobwebs, the recesses of your mind from three weeks ago, uh, one of the things that we, we really focused on, beginning in paragraph 4 of chapter 5, is the extent of God's providence. We, we have no trouble whatsoever giving providence credit for things that we perceive are good. Well, providentially, you know, we've been healthy. Providentially, financially, things have gone well. Providentially, the sun is shining today. But we tend not to do the same kinds of things. We say, well, providentially, the weather really stinks. Providentially, our financial picture is a mess. Providentially, we've been sick. And, and we still have to ask the question, what is the relationship of God to evil? What is the relationship of God to the ills of this world? Let's pray and call upon the one who has made us, the one who sustains us, the one who has redeemed us by his own blood. Let's call upon him and ask for him to send his spirit that we might have wisdom and understanding, that we can know not only what the scriptures tell us regarding these questions, but also that the scriptures can advise us on when, as it were, to put our hand over our mouth and say, that's as far as we can go. That's as much as we can say on that matter, because God hasn't spoken further. Let's pray and ask for His help and His wisdom. Father, we are grateful that You have made Yourself known to us, that You have you've made us friends in Christ. You've reconciled to us. You've reconciled us to You. And you do not deal with us as enemies or as strangers, but as children, as friends. And, and in that vein, you open your mind to us in your word. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you will help us to discern the very mind of God insofar as you have revealed yourself, that we might know you and worship you and adore you and live in reverence and awe and fear before you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. As we mentioned last time, inevitably, when we confess, as we do, that God governs all things, all things, from the least to the greatest, that have happened or will ever happen, the question immediately arises, what about evil? What about sin? What about calamity? What about injustice? And... We, we inevitably deal with the questions, not only from skeptics and scoffers, but if we're honest, within our own minds, 
we deal with this sort of latent question, why did God allow evil? And if not in a general sense, and we may in a very particular sense, why did God allow this particular evil to come to me at this particular time? We ask those questions. Why would God, why would a good God allow evil? Why would a good and just God allow injustice? And as we meditate upon the extent of God's providence, we, we are left, in, in my mind, with really three choices. Three choices. We can think, and this is, this is somewhat of a review from last time, but we can think that God is able to stop evil, that he has the power, he has the ability, but he has chosen, in a sense, to be hands-off. That he's chosen not to be involved in the workings and the governance of his creation. Or, we can say that God is not able to stop the evil. That he is concerned, he is interested, but he's just simply impotent, impotent when it comes to the presence of evil and sin and injustice in the world. The will of men is such that they just do as they please. Now, with those two questions, or those two options, and hopefully you know that neither of those are right, but let's think about the implications. If we think the first one, that God is able to stop evil, but he simply hands off, then what we are inevitably questioning is God's wisdom and his goodness. It's inescapable that we're questioning his wisdom and his goodness. God is able, he has the power, he has the potency to stop evil, but he doesn't. We're saying maybe he's hands off. And we say, on the other hand, if he's able to stop evil, or he's not able to stop evil, then it's his power is what's now questioned. Not necessarily his goodness or his wisdom, but he's just simply unable. He's helpless, as, as we often are in the face of evil. We may see it, but we're powerless, in a sense, to stop it. Well, there's a third option. It's the option that our, our confession puts before us. It's the option that I believe the Scriptures teach and that all of the Reformed confessions agreed upon. And it's this, that God does, in fact, govern all things to such an extent that He actually uses sin and evil to accomplish His good purposes. And yet He is not the author of sin or evil. And this is where the complexity comes in, isn't it? This is where the, the mental rub, as it were, comes in. Because in, in our minds, according to our creaturely, finite, feeble minds, it is difficult for us to comprehend how a sinless, holy, just God can use sin and evil to accomplish good purposes. And that's because our only vantage point our only point of reference is, is our own sinful condition, and we know that we could not use sin to accomplish a good purpose. We could not. And so we kind of think, reasoning from ourselves back up to God, we kind of think, well, then God couldn't either. But brothers and sisters, we, we remember we are not like God. And more than anything, God is not like us. So, we're going to be handling, the, for the most part, the second phrase in paragraph 4 in our confession. 
<clears throat> last week, we, or last time, we looked at the phrase, the almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and the infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves in His providence that His determinate counsel extendeth itself even to the first fall and all other sinful actions, both of angels and of men. So we argued that the extent of the fall is everything, including the first sin, the first fall of both men and angels. Now, our task today is is to expand and and to meditate, not necessarily an exegesis uh, per se, but, but to meditate upon this second phrase, and that meaning his, uh, his power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness manifesting in his providence, even to the extent of evil and sin, that, that, not by a bare permission, which also he most wisely and powerfully boundeth and otherwise ordereth and governeth in a manifold dispensation to his most holy ends. It is not a, to use the the language here, a bare permission by which God uses evil and sin. In fact, it is according to the nature of God that he cannot be the one who gives bare permission for anything because he is the one who, by his own power, the word of the power of Christ, all things hold together and consist. So for example... The one who blasphemes God. It is only by the power of God, giving that man life and breath and being, that that man is able to blaspheme God. And yet, is God the author of that sin? No. But in a sense, we can say he has to be the first cause of all things because apart from his ongoing active power, the man would cease to exist. God governs all things to the extent that he makes use of sin and evil to accomplish his good purposes. You turn with me, please, to to the book of Job. The book of Job. You can go to Psalm 1 and then turn left, and that's Job. In the first chapter of Job, and and you you probably know this, this account, this scene, as it were, very well. We have a picture as into the very throne room of heaven. Beginning in verse 6, we read this, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. 
So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now this is a dramatic scene, isn't it? And notice, as Satan comes in, the main, the main point of this passage is to show that it, it, is, it is God, in fact, who initiates or presents to Satan the idea of Job. Satan appears before the Lord. He testifies that he's been going to and fro on the earth, walking up and down, and it is the Lord who said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? See, God has a purpose here. Now that purpose, we're not going to get to it today, but it's, we're not going to look at the whole book of Job today. But you know the story of the book of Job. And, and one of the central themes in the book is a portrait. It's a picture of faith that perseveres, of faith that endures. And God is using even Satan himself ultimately to confirm and establish and even build up Job's faith. We're told that Job is, is a righteous man. And yet God uses the suffering that, that we, we see throughout the entire book of Job for the perfection of this saint. The second thing we notice, particularly in verse 12, you know, that Satan, Satan counters. Does, God, does Job fear God for no reason? Of course he fears you. You've given him everything. You've protected him. You've not allowed any bad thing to happen to him. Of course he's devoted to you. Of course he's loyal to you. Of course he believes in you. But here's what you need to do, God. If you will, will, will cause calamity to come upon him, then he'll curse you to your face. What happens? The Lord says to Satan in verse 12, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. What do we learn from this? Number one, God actually uses Satan for his own purposes. But two, Satan cannot do anything without God allowing it. In fact, even in this particular case, God has given a very specific restraint to Satan. You can touch what he has, but you cannot touch his person. Now we know later on, the Lord gives permission for that as well. But at first, the permission is only to touch his possessions, his family. These matters that we were considering, they're, they're weighty. I mean, they're very difficult. And we ought to tread humbly, uh, carefully. And, and I am, I'm confident of this, that whatever we, we look at today is, is almost certain to raise far more questions than it answers. That's the nature of, of a lot of these kinds of studies. When we're looking into the very mind of God, almost certainly, we're going to come away with more questions in our minds than we have answers. And so part of our prayer ought to be that God would, as we prayed earlier, that God would give us the wisdom to know when is far enough. When have we encompassed, as it were, what the Scriptures testify to us, but no farther than that not getting into our own speculations. If you want to know uh, or take a deeper dive onto this subject, I would commend to you several lectures uh, 
Dr. James Dolezal that lectured at the 2018 Southern California Reformed Baptist Pastors Conference. And going through the confession, that was on chapter 5 in, in Providence. And he had several lectures, uh, two of which were, were particularly important, I think, in this, this, with respect to this paragraph in particular. There's one called divine concurrence, and that's, that's a, a theological concept that God concurs, he uses sin and evil to accomplish his purposes. And secondly, dealing with the question, the, the immediate question of evil, the existence of evil. And so those are helpful lectures, and so if you go and you listen to those, much of what I say today will have an eerie, familiar kind of sound to it. Uh, Dr. Dolezal has been very helpful to me uh, thinking through these issues from the Scriptures. But here is ultimately the key question. Can we in any respect say that God is the cause of evil? And notice there's a qualifying phrase right in the middle. Can we in any respect say that God is the cause of evil? In Lamentations chapter 3, verse 38, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? I'm going to give you several other Scripture passages. I'm just going to go through kind of rapid fire here. Isaiah 45, verse, verse 7 I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Amos 7, verse 1. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout, and behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. 2 Samuel. We looked at this passage last time. 2 Samuel chapter 24 Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. And then, of course, just a few verses later, we see the testimony from David's own mouth. He said, Well, I have sinned. And yet, the Scriptures tell us it was God who incited David. Now, if you turn over to Chronicles, the parallel account, it says Satan incited David. Which is it? God used Satan. Satan desired to put this in the mind of David, and God allowed that. 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 23, Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. The Lord put a lying spirit into the mouths of their prophets. Lamentations chapter 2, verse 17, The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word which he commanded long ago. He is thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. It is God who made their enemies to rejoice over them. And, and just so we have a sense of this, lamentations are, are the, the outcries of Jeremiah on behalf of the people of Israel after Jerusalem, after Judah, was fully and finally sacked, destroyed. The, as you read through Lamentations, the kinds of suffering, the kinds of agony are, are almost too difficult to describe. And we're told that it is God who has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalt the might of your foes. 
Lastly, Amos chapter 3, verse 6, is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? So here's this key question. Can we say in any respect that God is the cause of evil? Well, just from a plain reading of the Scriptures, don't we have to say, yes, in some respect, God is the cause of evil? We, we have to say that. We cannot deny that. Because remember, if we deny it, we're saying God is impotent or He doesn't care. That He is not good and not wise or He is impotent to stop it. So we have to answer the question in the affirmative. Does God in any respect cause evil? Yes, but at the same time, in our own minds, in, in, upon our own lips, we have to guard the name of God. We cannot break the third commandment by saying He is the author of sin. We cannot say He is the author of sin. In Romans chapter 9, verse 13, the Apostle Paul <clears throat> is quoting... The Lord himself, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And then Paul concludes, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Before they were ever born, before they had a chance outwardly to do good or evil, God said, I loved Esau, or I loved Jacob, but Esau I hated. And then Paul says then, does that mean there's any injustice on God's part? Because he, he favored one and withheld good from another. And of course, you know the Paul's answer, by no means. May it never be. But this provokes us to think about a definition. What exactly is evil? Think about that. And it's, and it's, a, it's not as easy to define as you might first think. What is evil? Well, in, in the Reformed tradition, the, the, the wording of the definition is fairly simple, but it becomes more complex when, you, when we tease it out. Evil is simply this. It is the absence of good where good ought to be. It is the absence of good where good ought to be. So Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. There was a goodness, there was a favor that God showed. He showed a mercy to Jacob. That's a good, objectively. We would all agree with that. But is God the, the source? Is God the author of Esau's rebellion, of Esau's rejection of God, of Esau's selling of his own birthright for a bowl of porridge? No. God is not the author of that. God withheld good from Esau. Well, then the objection comes. Well, then isn't that an evil on God's part to withhold that good? God is not obligated. God is not obligated. And that really is the central question. That's kind of the hinge on which this issue swings, isn't it? Is God obligated to do good in every circumstance? Is God in sin or is God committing evil when he withholds himself from a creature? Paul's answer is, by no means. 
Is there any injustice on God's part? He withheld good from Esau. He showed favor. He showed good to Jacob. Is there any injustice on God's part? The answer is, by no means. The existence of sin, the existence of evil itself, depends upon the creature. It does not depend upon God. God did not create sin. God did not create evil. He decreed it as part of his most good and the most holy ends, but he did not create sin or evil. And, and we have to, we, we talked about this just, just in brief last time, but the Bible distinguishes, when it speaks of the will of God, it makes a distinction between the decorative will of God, the decree, and his preceptive will, what he has commanded, what he has said. So for example, here's the precept from God, do not murder. No one challenges that. No one objects and says God didn't really say that. God has said, you shall not murder. That's his preceptive will. But according to his decorative will, who caused the murder of his own son? According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, all these things came to pass just as he had decreed. God used the cowardice of Pilate. He used the corrupt, wicked heart of Judas and Caiaphas and of the council. He used the perverse kind of loyalty that the Roman shoulders, Roman soldiers show to accomplish the murder of his own son for his holy and just ends. But we have that, that distinction between God's decorative will, his will of decree, and his preceptive will, his will of statute. So Deuteronomy 29, 29. This is not in my, my notes. Just came, just came, reminded me. But here we have in, in one passage this contrast. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of his law. See, that's speaking of his will of precept, his preceptive will, but his decorative will is not known to us, is it? What has God decreed? I don't know with certainty. With respect to my own home, what has God decreed will happen in the Shifflet household? I don't know. What has he commanded? That I love my wife as Jesus loved his own church. Th that I shepherd and train and teach my children that I'm faithful in the things that he's given to me to do. Those are his preceptive will. What he has decreed secretly, I don't know. How God will use those things to accomplish his purposes, I don't know. I cannot know. Even, in, even with the advantage of hindsight, even looking backwards, my knowledge of what God has done is still limited, isn't it? My, God, my, my understanding of God's purposes is clearer, I mean, Admittedly, it's clearer looking backwards than it is forward, but it's, it's still not perfect, is it? See, God decreed sin and evil in the mystery of his own holy purposes, but he did not give a precept. He did not speak sin or evil into existence. 
I'm going to read a quote to you from Stephen Charnock. I've read this one before, but I think it's helpful to, to think through this by way of reminder. The holiness of God is not blemished by his secret will to suffer sin to enter into the world. See, that's the will of decree, his decorative will. God never willed sin by his preceptive will. It was never founded upon or produced by any word of his as the creation was. He never said, let there be sin under the heaven, as he said, let there be water under the heaven. Genesis 1.9. Nor does he will it by infusing any habit of it or stirring up inclinations to it. No, God tempts no man. James 1.13. Nor does he will it by his approving will. It is detestable to him, nor ever can be otherwise. He cannot approve it either before commission or after. Brothers and sisters, one of the things that we have to begin to wrap our minds around is that sin, evil, is not a substance. It's not a force. It's not an energy. It has neither wave nor particles. It, it, it doesn't exist in that, in that way. Sin and evil are always corruptions of a good. Sin is not a thing in itself. Evil is not a thing in itself. They are corruptions of some good. Just as darkness doesn't exist all by itself, it's just simply the absence of light. Bavink uses the phrase provatio boni, a privation of good. It's the Latin phrase, provatio boni, the privation or the absence of some good thing. Listen to what he says. Sin is a no thing, no hyphen thing. He doesn't say sin is nothing. He said sin is a no thing. It can only be a privation or corruption of the good. Sin is a defect, a deprivation, an absence of the good, or a weakness imbalance just as blindness is a deprivation of sight. The idea of sin as privation, however, is incomplete. Sin is also an active, corrupting, destructive power. Sin is a privation of the moral perfection human persons ought to possess and includes active transgression. It is an active and corrupting principle, a dissolving destructive power. Having no existence on its own, sin is ethical, spiritual in nature, though it always comes to expression in concrete terms. It is a deformity, a departure from God's perfect law by rational creatures who can know and do God's will. The characterization of sin as privation, accordingly, by no means excludes it being also, viewed from a different angle, an action. It is not a substance or a thing, but in, it, but in its being deprived of the good, it is an activity, just as the hobbling of a crippled dog is still an, actively, an activity, a defective walking. So, it's a lot of words there, but here, here's the essence of it. Sin is, is not a thing in itself. It has a power because of the corruption of the creature. But sin is not a force. And again, this is we've talked about this before. We want to avoid the George Lucas theology. Remember what I mean by that? The dualism. 
that there is good and evil waging war against each other, and sometimes we don't know who's going to win. There is no evil. There is no sin as a thing in of itself. Sin and evil are privations. They are, they are rebellions against a good. They are, <clears throat> they are transgression of the good, a corrupting of the good. Now we've got a lot more that we need to think through on this subject. I, I think that's probably enough for us to chew on. It's a big enough meal for one sitting, isn't it? But we want to, that's the, the main idea, is to think about what is, what is evil? How do we conceive of evil? And, and we will very easily, if we're not anchoring ourselves to the Scriptures, we will very easily drift into a dualism or a pseudo-quasi-dualism where we begin to think that evil exists as its own thing. But that's, that's not the case. Evil is a corruption of. So for example, maybe you can illustrate it this way. It is no evil that I am not able to fly. I wasn't designed to fly. But if we were to go out and find an eagle out in the street, injured and unable to fly, we would say that is an evil. That is a calamity. Because some good that ought to be there has been removed, or injured, or corrupted, or done away with. But it is not an evil that I have not the ability to fly. I wasn't designed to do that. That's not something God has withheld from me. God has not created evil. He is not the author of evil, and yet he uses the sins of men. He uses the deprivations of good found in his creation to accomplish his holy ends. I'm going to close with one final quote from Stephen Charnock. He says this, God therefore in his government doth advance his power in the weakness, his wisdom in the follies, his holiness in the sins, his mercy in the unkindness, and his justice in in the unrighteousness of men, yet God is not defiled with the impurities of men, but rather draws forth a glory to himself. As a rose doth a greater beauty and sweetness from the strong smell of the garlic set near it. It's quite the image, isn't it? Kind of an olfactory image. The rose smells sweeter when it's next to the garlic. But God, God is not the one who, he is not the author but he uses weakness. What does Paul say about our own weakness? That Christ's power is perfected in it, right? In our folly, God's wisdom is displayed. I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians uh, today in the sermon where Paul reasons in that very way, that the foolishness of the world is the wisdom of God. And that God chooses the weak things, the foolish things of this world to confound the strong and the wise. It is through his justice that God uses the unrighteousness of men for his holy purposes. So as we come back to this phrase in our confession, that God's providence 
His determinate counsel extendeth itself even to the first fall and all other sinful actions, both of angels and men, and that not by a bare permission, which also he most wisely and powerfully boundeth, and otherwise ordereth and governeth in a manifold dispensation to his most holy ends. And I want to remind you that when we looked last time, this, the central issue, the central thing that, that has to guard our thinking about the presence of sin and evil is the character of God himself. God's good character, his just character, his wise character, his omnipotent character. All those things must govern our thinking. And so when we think about the nature of of sin and evil, the the presence of those things in our lives, are we, number one, are we thinking about evil in itself rightly? But also, are we thinking about God's character correctly? I hesitate to ask about questions, but I knew they would come. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know how that I would say they're deficient. Uh, there's different words. There's synonyms, roughly. Um, I, I think to say precept is is more more accurate because it's clearer. This is this is God's command. This is what God has has said. Uh, and, and and I would prefer the term of His will of decree or His decretive or decretive will. But I don't know that those terms are necessarily deficient. They're just going to have to be fleshed out a little bit. Yeah. So has your head hurt yet? <laughs> I said before, this is the theological equivalent of drinking a milkshake too quickly. Your brain just can hurt. Um, but they're important things. And if, if you are dealing with someone who claims to be an atheist or agnostic, or those who have, quote, deconstructed in their Christian faith, which somewhat a redundant statement, right? The atheist or agnostic. Almost certainly, if not the first thing, the first objection raised, surely in that conversation, very quickly, it's going to come to this question of evil. And so it is, I think, uh, in obedience to the commands of Scripture that we reverence Christ as holy in our hearts, always being ready to give a defense, an apologia for the hope that is within us. So these are things that they are hard, they are difficult, but it is, it is necessary for us to be able to, to speak, not technically, we don't have to be able to, to speak with all of the technical acumen of, of, of an Aquinas or an R.C. Sproul or any of the, 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 these tremendous minds throughout history. Thankfully, that's not the standard for us. But we ought to be able to be able to speak plainly about the nature of evil. That, that the evil is, is what we see as evil is a corruption of God's good design. If God had not 
deposited goodness within his creation, there could be no evil. The only reason that we can say, for example, that adultery is an evil is because God has created such a blessing of marriage that is corrupted by men's wicked deeds and thoughts. And we also need to speak about the character of our God, that he is good and just and always does right. And that we, we will not stand in our own minds or on the lips of others to have God's goodness challenged. To accept the charge that God is somehow participating in evil. Or that God is causing in, in, in this, from the standpoint of being the author of. And, and you can think about so the illustration I gave earlier about the blasphemer. Even this is the direct assault against God himself. And God did not put the words, God did not put the sinful thoughts in the mind of the man who blasphemes him. But it is God who's given him the breath, the tongue, the mind, the neurons, and, and all those um, cranial processes by which he can blaspheme God. So God is, we, we cannot make God, we can't solve the problem by making God smaller. But we also cannot assign the blame to God that, that is reserved to the creature alone. Let's pray, and we'll take a, take a short break. Father, we are we're thankful that you have displayed your goodness, your power, your authority to us in creation. The heavens themselves declare your glory and your majesty, your dominion, your goodness and your mercy. And still far more, your word expounds upon the book of nature to give to us a, a sufficient testimony of who you are as Father, Son, and Spirit. God in three persons, and yet three in unity. Father, help us to understand what your word teaches to us about the nature of sin and evil and about our culpability as creatures. Help us to resist the temptation in our own thoughts, our own, our own words of blaming you for the sin around us or for the evil things that we see and experience. But help us to plead the blood of Christ as we take responsibility for our own sinful deeds. We ask this in his name. Amen.